You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Since 2009, the Pharmacy Podcast Network has led the podcasting space for the pharmacy industry. This network of pharmacists and pharmacy technicians leads the podcasting charts with more than 2 million downloads, 40 different stations, and new episodes every week. The Pharmacy Podcast Network is the number one podcast for the pharmacy professional. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and all your favorite podcast players. Join the Pharmacy Podcast Nation today. to another edition of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. Uh, I'm your host, Jeff Wall, a professor of pharmacy practice at Drake University and internal medicine clinical pharmacist at Methodist Hospital in Des Moines, Iowa, welcoming you hopefully again uh, to a rapid fire uh, review of some hopefully pretty important and, and, and uh, pertinent stuff to your practice, wherever you are practicing. Um, and of course, the beauty of this is you get CE for it if uh, you just have to go to CE Impact and sign up and uh, you will get probably some of the easiest CE you will ever get because you can just listen while you drive, get on the uh, sign up for it and, and uh, register and then uh, answer your answer the one question and boom, you've got some CE for you. I think that's good. I can't really imagine of an easier way to get CE. So uh, uh, please do go to CE Impact, not only for, for Game Changers who sponsors this, this uh, talk or this uh, podcast, but for all the other great CE they've got going on. So they've got, you know, really uh, for wherever you practice, whatever type of area you practice in, they, they, they really have some, some great, great uh, continuing education programming for you. Uh, uh, those of you who are continuing listening, hope you continue to like it. Uh, please like us wherever you like your uh, podcasts and, and and spread the word. Tell your friends. Hell, tell your enemies. And and uh, <laughs> maybe they'll like it too. Who knows? But uh, And get more and more people listening to uh, to uh, um, uh, Game Changers. So I've tried for the last couple of weeks to dodge uh, talking about COVID, but, you know, of course, it's almost impossible to do that. So I basically just gave in to the, to the tide and said, well, this, this next uh, uh, talk, we're going to just kind of do a quick update on two therapeutic possibilities for for uh, for COVID uh, that we're gaining a little more information on, and I thought that was probably worth uh, discussing. So we're going to talk today about convalescent plasma uh, in patients who have COVID-19, and then we're also going to talk about uh, the IL-6 inhibitor tocilizumab uh, for COVID-19. Um, again, keeping in mind that, that by the time you hear this, you know, a big study could have come out that, that maybe invalidates the stuff we're talking about. I mean, that's literally what we're dealing with now when it comes to, to, to COVID. It is 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 you know, the, the information is changing so rapidly. I was actually talking to uh, one of my infectious disease docs because we're we're doing some research in my hospital about this, and that's one of the things that we're really you know struggling against when we're trying to do research is that you know when when the standard of care literally changes week to week, uh, it becomes very difficult to to do to do studies and say well gee you know how we treated patients in January in in June for example uh, isn't how we treat patients in August, and how we treat patients today is probably not how we're going to be treating patients in October. So it's, uh, <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to use the U word, um, you know, but, but I, I will say I've, I, I've not seen, I've never seen this before in my career. I hope to never see anything like this before uh, again in my career. And I'm sure many of you feel the same way. So first up, we're going to talk about convalescent plasma. And uh, this is, uh, this is definitely a back to the future sort of, sort of thing going on here because uh, 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 the, the notion of, of, of taking people's uh, taking the the 
blood from patients who have 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 survived uh, uh, COVID-19, taking off the red cells, the white cells, and the platelets, and then basically giving the the plasma that's just what's left uh, to patients with uh, who, are, who are suffering from the disease as a form of passive immunity. Um, actually, is 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 one of the oldest uh, uh, tricks in medicine. It has been used at least since the 19th century, and in fact, uh, the first big uh, uh, use that we have recorded of of using convalescent plasma, uh, though it was much cruder, was in the 1918 uh, uh, influenza outbreak, worldwide influenza outbreak. Uh, that that was the first. There, there was that's the first kind of reports of people using it. It was used extensively in uh, uh, other uh, pandemics, uh, including the 1958 uh, uh, flu vac, uh, Hong Kong flu vac, uh, or Hong Kong flu pandemic, and more recently, and I think more importantly for our our purposes, uh, it was used quite a bit in the original 2003 SARS CoV-1 outbreak and had some good results. In fact, even a small study that suggested that it might improve mortality. So when when uh, SARS-CoV-2 hit the scene and, and COVID-19 was coming, I think this was one of the earliest things with that, that that experts in this field started looking at is, is is you know, uh, can we give uh, uh, plasma that theoretically has high levels of neutralizing antibodies uh, to other patients and see if that acts as a form of, of passive immunity. So that's kind of, you know, kind of the background of it. I can tell you that in my neck of the woods, and I know there's some huge variations in the use of convalescent plasma, depending on where you're listening to this, we were pretty lucky pretty early on in the game in my uh, part of, of the world that that our local blood bank experts were actually very uh, forward thinking and, and saying, yes, we I think we really need to get this done. And I think we really uh, um I think we I, I think we really can can manipulate uh, our blood bank and how we receive blood to make it safe for these patients and for our staff to be able to get you guys uh, convalescent plasma. So in my hospitals uh, in the central Iowa area, we've been using convalescent plasma pretty extensively. And I was just looking at some some information from our big database uh, just a couple of days ago, and we have about 30 to 40 percent of our patients who are hospitalized with COVID have received convalescent plasma. So it's uh, it's you know we've used quite a bit of it. Uh, it's actually fairly painless for the donor um, that you basically go in and they will actually test your antibody titers. Um, and uh, if they are high enough, in other words, if you have high enough levels of antibodies uh, in, in your bloodstream, uh, then they will go ahead and, and siphon off a unit um, of, of, of blood um, or a unit of plasma. And it's important to know that that single unit of plasma is enough to treat three patients. So, uh, it, you know, it, it's definitely something that, that, that you're, you're, you're if you are, happen to be one of the people who ha got COVID and, and recovered, you know, if it's something you'd like to consider doing, um, you will be helping multiple people if, if, if you decide to do that. So, yeah, so one, one unit donated, donated from the patient gives you about three treatment courses of convalescent plasma. So, and it's basically given as, as a single infusion. Some people have tried two infusions, but that doesn't really, you know, make a whole lot of sense. And so basically how we've been doing it and how most other places have been doing it is, is you get a single infusion over an hour. There's been some concern about the potential for infusion site reactions. And we have had a couple of small reactions that have occurred in patients, but on the whole, it, it, it because you're just giving plasma it, instead of the formed elements like red cells and white cells, it's actually pretty well tolerated. And we don't, you don't see a lot of like infusion reactions or anything along those lines. Um, you know, it's important to remember that we give plasma to, for example, trauma patients or patients who are bleeding all the time. And that's something we very rarely worry about with those patients. So, so that's, 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 that's kind of what we've done. 
there's been a number of, of retrospective case series that have looked at, 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 at convalescent plasma. And I mean, and if I were to go through those, we could talk about those for an hour straight. I decided instead of just talking about, about what we had there, I, I thought I'd talk about a couple of uh, recent papers that have come out uh, that are, I think are a little more rigorous, um, including a match control study, a randomized control trial that actually has some very interesting evidence supporting of it, and then a very recently published uh, uh, meta-analysis. So, First up um, is the, the the match control study. Uh, this was a study done in the, done uh, in the United States, and uh, uh, what they did in this study was patients uh, who uh, were hospitalized with severe life threatening COVID nineteen. So these were people on high levels of oxygen support or who were mechanically ventilated. Um, were, were basically all uh, of the people in the cohort did receive convalescent plasma, and then they did a matched con uh, control. Uh, uh, retrospectively to patients who basically had the same uh, oxygen needs and that had other uh, 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 characteristics that might be associated with worse outcomes, and that included things like diabetes and age and things along those lines. Uh, when the patients received them, uh, the, they made sure that, that, that the uh, level of antibodies in the donated plasma was quite high. In fact, over 1 to 320 dilutions, so diluted out 320 times quite a bit, uh, you'd still see some antibody levels there. And again, they, they matched these, these patients for, for a number of things. And what they found in this, in this retrospective case control study was that patients who received convalescent plasma uh, were at, uh, likely to have improvements in their oxygen requirements uh, within 14 days after the infusion. They also demonstrated improved survival um, as well. And, and after they adjusted for a whole bunch of other things, the, where they particularly found the benefit was in non-intubated patients. And that's we're finding what I think with a lot of these treatments is that if you can get to patients early, they tend to do better with it. And so in a, in a, uh, a adjusted uh, covariate model, when they looked at this, when they looked at non-intubated patients, uh, it, it actually uh, significantly improved survival or uh, it was associated with it with improved survival for particularly for non-intubated patients. So this paper kind of came away with saying that, again, it doesn't prove anything because it's a, it's, 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 a, it's a cohort study. It's not a randomized controlled perspective study. Study, but it did uh, suggest that, that patients tolerate it well, and it's associated with um, uh, improvements in oxygen and maybe even improvements in survival, particularly in patients who uh, um, are not intubated. The first randomized control trial for, for uh, convalescent plasma has only has been published only in the last two and a half weeks, so it's really kind of hot off the press. Um, and so uh, it, uh, this study was done uh, in the Netherlands, and what they did is, is they started a study where they randomized patients uh, to, to basically a standard of care, so nothing, or receiving convalescent plasma. It wasn't a blinded study, but at least it was a randomized and controlled study, so that, that, that's something pretty good. They wanted to make sure that the patients uh, who received uh, uh, convalescent plasma, that the antibody titers were at least 1 to 80, so a little bit lower than in the other, uh, other study we just talked about. This was very interesting. Um, so in, in this study, they started out looking at 60-day at mortality and things along those lines, but what was very interesting was was uh, before starting the infusion uh, on these patients, uh, uh, the investigators actually checked the, these very patients, the patients who were sick with COVID, for uh, seeing if they had already developed a significant antibody response themselves. And what they actually found was, yeah, the majority of them had. So out of 56 patients, the first 56 patients they they put with, uh, they were getting ready to give uh, the uh, convalescent plasma to, 79% of them already had 
antibody titers in their blood already that were at least as high as what they were getting ready to give them. And so very interesting this study, they actually halted this study early, not because they thought it was a, you know, there was a problem, there was harm, or they couldn't find benefit, but it did raise an interesting question, you know, should we be giving convalescent plasma to patients who may already have significant levels of antibodies in their body in the first place. So what benefit would you get from that? And I thought that was, I thought it was a fascinating study along those lines, because up, up to this point, we really haven't thought about that. We just assumed that patients wouldn't develop a significant antibody response until they were well on their way to recovery. And that's not what they really found in this study. Um, now, it's difficult to, to, to see if that's true in other populations. I don't know about my listeners, but but in my hospital, it is next to impossible to get to get antibody studies done at this point. Uh, really, we have to rely on on, on PCR looking for for pieces of, of of the virus in the blood. So, uh, you know, is this going to be true in our patient population? That's a great question, and 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 it'll be and I really don't know the answer to it. So we'll see what happens with that. And then finally, um, a, a just again the last two or three weeks, a a. a uh, meta-analysis was published, uh, and these guys, this wasn't the greatest meta-analysis, and I think they even admit that in their paper, because, of course, they had to use mostly non-randomized controlled trials. And as you know, you know, meta-analysis robustness and, and the ability to really draw conclusions from meta-analyses is really dependent on the studies they, they do their meta-analysis on. It's kind of a garbage-in, garbage-out sort of thing. And so uh, it, but uh, and so they, they do recognize that they had to use a lot of, of fairly poor, either retrospective cohort studies or case control studies like the first one we just talked about that don't have a lot of rigor to them. So when you don't have a lot of rigor in them, it makes it more difficult to kind of figure out what's going on. Despite that, uh, they they did look at several studies and they kind of brought them together. Only 61 patients in this entire meta-analysis, again, telling you that most of the stuff they looked at was kind of retrospective cohorts and, and, and things along those lines. So, uh, you know, that that's, that's just something to kind of keep in mind. But again, it's probably the most robust uh, uh, meta-analysis that, we, that, we, that we've got to date. Um, and what they what they basically found was that that convalescent pl uh, plasma treatment in this meta-analysis was safe, and it did improve outcomes. And one of the things they talked about, the outcomes were kind of all over the place, but they they, they improved clinical outcomes. So they improved uh, 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 clinical status. They improved um, um, uh, patients getting off the ventilator, things along those lines. Uh, in about half of the patients that 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 were looked at at the meta-analysis. Now again. And this, the, the heterogeneity in this in this meta-analysis was huge because these, these are all sorts of different studies. They got all sorts of different treatments besides just convalescent plasma. Half of these patients got you know hydroxychloroquine and 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 lopinavir, ritonavir, and all sorts of stuff like that. So again, I, I would I would hardly bring this meta-analysis you know up and say hey this is the definitive stuff that tells us it's good. But it, I think there is some evidence to suggest that that this and other studies have suggested that convalescent plasma at least in patients who may not necessarily have their own robust antibody response seems to have some benefit. Now, the final word on this is going to be another arm of the recovery study. As you guys know, the recovery study is this gigantic study being done in the United Kingdom where they're basically taking a pragmatic approach and trying basically all sorts of different treatments to see which will be beneficial in kind of a, in kind of a stepwise sort of randomized control trial. So they are randomized control trials that are they're big enough and well done enough we can really drive good information from. And that's where we got the the bed. Uh, we knew about the benefit of dexamethasone. And I'll tell you, pretty much nowadays, you have COVID in my hospital, you get dexamethasone for sure. Um, and so, uh, uh, 
the, the, another arm of the COVID study is a convalescent plasma arm, and the rumor going around is that's going to be published very, very soon. And so hopefully that'll kind of give us kind of one of the final words on this. But but data to date, I think, does suggest that convalescent plasma is not harmful and, and certainly has the potential to be helpful. Now, uh, another treatment that has a, a little less data to support it, and in fact is, is not as good data to support it, is tocilizumab. So, you know, we know that in patients who have severe uh, uh, COVID uh, uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, they develop, often develop something called a cytokine storm. And I won't belabor that because I suspect most people in the audience are well aware of what that is. Just suffice it to say that the body's own immune system basically overcompensates for fighting the infection. And you get this unbelievable uh, pro-inflammatory response rate that leads to alveolar damage and ARDS and, and other organ damage and things like that. And in the early days of, 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 of the COVID epidemic, uh, one of the key uh, inflammatory markers they looked at was ferritin. And in these patients, uh, serum ferritin levels were just un they were just off the scale. They're unbelievably high in, in, in the, in the you know, tens of thousands of range. And I'm an old man. I've been a pharmacist for a long time. My, I know that the, 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 the kind of the clinical teaching is that when you see you know, ferritins of five figures or higher, you've got to be thinking of something. Some sort of like you know cancerous process or some sort of super duper inflammatory process that leads to that, and uh, uh, with uh, those types of super inflammatory processes like HLH, uh, uh, clinicians in the years past have used uh, 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 anti uh, uh, interleukin. Uh, monoclonal antibodies as treatment. So that's kind of where the, where the thought, well, if that's the case and it works for HLH and some of these other uh, uh, types of, of, of big pro-inflammatory systems, um, where, where, kind of where are we next with that? So um, so that's kind of where tocilizumab came up. And so, you know, uh, it had been used ex pretty extensively in, in, in uh, Italy during their outbreaks in Milan and stuff like that. But as far as, as, as us using it in the United States, we've used it. In fact, uh, some of our surrounding areas have used it quite a bit. Uh, and and so the question is, well, you know, okay, you know, anecdotally, some people say it works. What what have the what have the studies shown? Well, so far we've we've had two, I think, pretty decent studies. The first has actually been semi-published anyway, and it was the COVID dose study. Now this study took a look at a different approach. Instead of waiting for patients to pretty much be you know in extremis and 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 having uh, um, you know being ventilated and being super duper sick, they actually looked at at, at low dose tocilizumab in patients who who were sick and they were hospitalized and they were on oxygen and they had a high C-reactive protein, but they were not on mechanical ventilation. And they used very, very low doses of tocilizumab, anywhere from 40 to 200 milligrams were, were, were evaluated. Again, like all these teeny tiny studies, it was, it, was a, it was a tiny study, 32 patients, but they did find that the patients who, again, were not mechanically ventilated who received tocilizumab did have an improvement in fever resolution. Their CRP declined within 24 to 48 hours of, of getting the drug. And uh, they they, uh, uh, the mean time to clinical recovery was quicker, and and they and their uh, uh, their overall uh, clinical outcomes were better. This study wasn't big enough to look at mortality, so they didn't really comment on that in in, in this dose. But this study suggested that low dose tocilizumab uh, may have have some have some benefit. So that you know that and some case series is suggested. Hey, maybe tocilizumab is a pretty good drug for these. But unfortunately, just in the last couple of weeks, uh, Genentech, who's the company that makes tocilizumab, uh, had provided an update on their gigantic phase three uh, uh, COVID. 
Covacta study, and this was a patient, these were, again, hospitalized patients with severe COVID-19 uh, pneumonia, and they announced in, in this press release that, unfortunately, uh, tocilizumab did not meet its primary out, uh, uh, clinical out, uh, endpoints uh, in uh, uh, hospitalized adult patients with severe COVID-19-associated pneumonia. And so the, the primary outcome in the study was a difference in clinical status, and they used the kind of the standard seven-point scale where, you know, uh, uh, zero is essentially normal and seven is, is unfortunately passed away. And they found that, that or, the ordinal scale was not actually better in patients who received uh, um, um, uh, tocilizumab. Uh, there was no difference in mortality. There was no difference in the length of stay. Uh, 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 and there was no difference in ventilator-free days. And so uh, they, you know, basically said in this, in this, uh, um, they basically said in this in this press release that that they were disappointed they didn't find this benefit but perhaps there'll be another you know the other studies are looking at will find a benefit in other types of patients again maybe tocilizumab when we reach a level where patients have severe pneumonia and they're on the vent you know are a lot of our therapies just not going to work because it's just too late i think is the question now of course we don't have the entire paper of this uh as i was joking with some friends of mine the other day that we've now reached the point where we're not even using evidence-based medicine anymore we're using evidence-based press releases um, so we don't really even have the paper to look at to know what we're dealing with here. But uh, Genentech, again, probably would not uh, you know, announce that their study didn't work unless their study didn't work. And so, you know, I think a lot of places are, are kind of going back to the drawing board, a lot of health systems about where exactly uh, uh, tocilizumab has a role in these patients. And again, I'm not sure I have an answer for that. Uh, yet another arm of the recovery study is also looking at tocilizumab. So maybe that'll give us some information. The two big fears we have with with these drugs is uh, with with uh, with was one is uh, super bacterial infection because it is an immunosuppressant drug and that has been reported in in a few case series uh, and the other of course is the cost it is extremely expensive thousands of dollars per dose and so uh, you know it, I think unless unless we can get some pretty good evidence showing that this drug is beneficial I suspect that the risk is going to outweigh the benefit based on the data we have now and certainly I've become a lot more cooler on on suggesting tocilizumab based on the information that we've got here. So anyway, so that's kind of a quick update. Again, could be could could be could change by the time I, I, I turn off the microphone. You just never know how things go with 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 COVID right now. But uh, we'll wrap up here in just a second after a word from the sponsor, uh, CE Impact. Game Changers discusses clinical guidelines and pharmacotherapy trends that significantly impact practice. Game Changers is produced and accredited by CE Impact and hosted by Dr. Jeff Wall. New episodes are released each week and available for pharmacy continuing education credit to CE Impact subscribers. CE Impact subscription service brings you the CE you need on the topics that matter the most. Check out the link to sign up in the show notes. Use code PODCAST for a Pharmacy Podcast Network discount. So, you know, again, we're we're entering what month six, month seven of of the COVID crisis in in, in the United States. Uh, uh, I think we are learning more. We're all learning better about how to treat patients. I think that's the reason why the mortality uh, levels continue to drop, even though our case rates continue to increase. We still have a lot to learn. There's no doubt about it. A lot of drugs are, are on the on the chopping block and being studied about where where we're going to use them. Um, everything from nanotechnology to uh, uh, what was I reading? Alpaca. Uh, 
uh, antibodies are now entering phase three studies. So yeah, so who knows what we'll be uh, what we'll be using for 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 COVID even the next three or four months. So anyway, I appreciate you sticking around. Uh, hopefully this was of interest. Uh, we are going to go back to non-COVID. I really really hope unless some gigantic paper comes out or something. Uh, or we're going to go back to non-COVID next week. So uh, stick around for that, please. Uh, again, thanks for listening. And remember, uh, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. Take care.